This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and today I'm joined by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing well, uh, despite the the gloomy weather. Did you notice how dark it was yesterday? We're recording on Friday, so this would have been Thursday, and it was it was absolutely dreadful outside. Yeah, there was like a a weird yellow tint to the sky that I kept having to like rub my eyes and be like, is this me? And um, right. it almost looked like some of the pictures from the wildfires of like that weird haze. Yeah. It was an eerie day. Well, I, I had heard that that discoloration may have been from the wildfires in Colorado. Huh. But I don't I don't have any evidence to back that up. It's just what I heard. But we can put um, it out there. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, just any unverified anecdotes that we have. But uh, no, it was it was really weird, especially around noon, looking outside and feeling like it was the end of the day. It totally threw me off my rhythm. I just felt like we were way later on in the day than we were. Yeah, it was it's just odd, eerie feeling all day long. Right. Which is appropriate given the uh, the election, COVID, everything else. Why not just throw another weird thing into our lives? Yeah, exactly. Why not just have the the outside world reflect what we're what we're feeling every day? Um, <laughs> why don't we Why don't we jump into the news? A couple of things to talk about. Uh, let's check back in on on our old favorite topic the the high water levels. So <laughs> Ephraim in particular is dealing with some high water level related issues uh, and also trying to look at the future and, and what sorts of planning they need to do, uh, both for, you know, the sidewalks and, and the roads, but also the Hardy Gallery. Uh, tell me what's going on over in Ephraim. Yeah. So even though um, water levels are a little bit down from last year, they're about an inch lower than they were in October this time last year, and they're about four inches down from September. So they at least they're dropping a little bit, but they're still pretty high, um, which for anybody with shoreline property and especially Ephraim, that leaves you a little scared for the fall, especially the late fall um, when you get north northwest winds that come in and really pummel the harbor there. If you uh, if our listeners recall, and I don't know if you recall, Andrew, but last year, right before Thanksgiving, there was a big storm and just destroyed a bunch of docks in Ephraim and, and left people scrambling to get uh, piers shored up or or removed from the water. So right. that that also threw a bunch of debris onto the roads, caused a lot of, a lot of little lakefront damage or shoreline damage. So the village of E from now, in from a long term perspective, is looking at remediation they can do on the shoreline to shore things up by putting a slightly higher stone revetments along the shore. Um, to stop it from undermining, say, like the shorefront walkway and and the grass parkland right along the shore. And then um, that would be, but they're trying to plan it in a way that like, doesn't just put a big rock wall along the shoreline, right? Because everybody loves walking from such a pretty village. So they're looking at trying to design some um, protective barriers that will also be attractive to the eye because they're going to be like a foot to two feet above like the ground level in some spots. Um, so trying to make them, so you see a lot of those kinds of things where they make them into the big stones, but they work as benches too, and things like that. So that's kind of the stuff they're looking at approximately $750,000, um, of work that they're looking at doing to protect the, the shoreline, the road, the park, the walkways, um, all along kind of from like where the old firehouse museum is up to 
um, kind of where the town hall is. Right. Yeah. A lot of work has been done over the last couple of years just to try to, you know, in the short term, fix or or repair things. But uh, given that the water level has been high for a little bit now, uh, what what types of long term fixes can can go into it? Because, you know, if the water level goes back down over the next year or two uh, and sit, kind of averages out, who's to say that, you know, in five, 10 years, we're not going to be in the same spot. So what what sort of like long term enhancements can be done in the different communities to to try to prevent the damage that we saw last year? Well, that's a it's a great question. Uh, part of what the point you just made is, you know, the water, you know, unless historically the, the, the historic lake levels tell you that the water will go back down. Um, so as high as it is now, when you're, when you're making these improvements to deal with high water levels, you want something that is not going to look totally out of place when the water drops several feet again. Like in 2013, it was something close to five or six feet lower than it is now. And anybody who remembers the low water years in Ephraim when you could kind of walk out like 100 yards and still be on on land into the lake. Um, So what will that look like if you then have low water and then this huge wall? So part of it is trying to create something that will look good in low water and be protective in high water. So that's a it's a tough line to to tiptoe on. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because uh, on one hand, you can you can do these sort of like fixes or band-aids or try to mitigate as much damage as possible when the water is high, but at the same time it's like do you do that and then just bank on the water level going back down quickly and then another 10 years from now have to do it again? Or do you try to find some sort of middle ground that will work for when the water's high and when it's low? So I, yeah, I, I kind of get that. But the, I guess the other question I have though is like, in terms of Ephraim being right there, right on the water, uh, how much how much more give do they have in terms of, you know, if the water level goes up another inch or two, uh, especially with the Hardy Gallery, because that seems to kind of be, uh, it, it juts out and it's kind of low to the to the water level so how, how much more give is there yeah i mean it, it seems like it's really close and you might think okay it's gonna this is threatening the road right now but it would actually have to go up like i think it's something like at least 10 more inches before it would actually where you would have like standing water that would hit the highway in some of the lower spots so mm-hmm. it's even though it seems close it's not quite as close as as it may sometimes seem um but you do have even if it doesn't get that high that it's standing water it's still in high in storm events, it can be um, pretty damaging to all those shoreline homes and potentially undermine some of the um, base of the roads and, and some of the uh, parkland there. Um, right. The Hardy Gallery is an interesting one because, you know, it's been there through high water and low level years before. I think that the highest water level year was 1986. The lowest water year in October, uh, talking about October numbers, was uh, 80 or 60, 1964. So it's it has seen these ebbs and flows before and not been damaged. But there is a fear that like with the water being as high as it is now and then you get it's not so much that they're getting um, damage from waves or or that standing water on the pier right now. I talked to Sarah over at uh, the Hardy Gallery, the executive director there, and she said, actually, this summer, even when it looks like the waves are crashing all over that that into that building, it's still dry inside. So it's actually a, a as she said, it's a more resilient building than than you might think. But the bigger fear for some people is like, all right, what if we have an ice shove event? on that pier at the north end of town, when you get a big north-northwest wind, could that potentially send an ice shove crashing into the Hardy Gallery? So um, there's some fear about that. And 
The village, though, their priority is the the larger section of the shorefront versus the gallery. And one of the things they've been talking about doing, and I think they did this last year, was to put some like a backhoe or something like that down there at the dock so that if you did start to see ice start to build up along that dock, they could very quickly go in and try and break that down if they happen to notice it in time and get ahead of it. So they are they are concerned about it, but they from a village you know, bang for your buck standpoint, um, protecting that one building versus protecting the entire shoreline is what they're trying to weigh out there. Um, right. They have talked about other fixes, potentially raising the Hardy building, uh, putting it up on, pouring cement underneath the, the pier and literally raising the pier, doing some oh. things to raise the, the foundation of the building, maybe a foot or two, or even um, treating it like the granary and picking it up and moving it off the dock and putting it in the parking lot for a couple of years until the water goes back down. Um, they so far have rejected doing any of those. They're still investigating, trying to figure out what the best long-term solution is. Um, it is rented by the Hardy Gallery, gallery but the building is and the pier is actually owned by the village. Yeah, I, I'd be interested in seeing them, you know, raising it up maybe three feet. And then when the water goes back down, now all of a sudden it will stand as a testament. You know, it'll be now like 15 feet in the air compared to the water level that would be interesting to look at yeah i mean it's it's a tough call like where do you spend your tax dollars and your village resources and for what what gain are you looking at a one-year potential thing and then it goes back down again i mean the, we spent a lot of money studying the low water years and then right when they thought they figured out everything about the and finished all those studies the water came back up and then um back in the 80s they were trying to figure out what are we going to do about all this high water? It's like we've got to put in all these revetments and all this shoreline protection. And then the water dropped. And so you're like, well, now we have all that done. But for what? And you really have to think longer term, like any from what uh, uh, the Brent Bristol was saying is we're trying to think what's the fix for 20 to 30 years, not not what's the fix for two or three. Right. Uh, so if you're picking up this week's pulse uh, and I highly encourage everybody to do so, uh, you'll be greeted by a really cool cover uh, that was put together for this issue. Uh, it is a big photo collage of service industry workers as a kind of a big thank you to all of the folks that really made Door County run this summer. As we talked about before. Before, not only was this just a busy summer in general, uh, so you, you had kind of the fatigue of working through a hard Door County summer, uh, we also had the pandemic going on. So there were many other challenges on top of it. And uh, some really incredible service people were able to get us through this season and uh, wanted to say thank you. So we put together a really, really cool cover kind of honoring those folks. Yeah. And obviously, You'd like to put everybody on there, um, but I think it's about 100 to 150 different faces that different businesses and organizations submitted. People, you know, musicians who have found different ways to entertain people, um, people working on the front lines in um, our restaurants and in our grocery stores, retail shops, um, some of our healthcare providers. Just kind of a, a cross section of these people. Um, all the things that people love to see and do when they come to Door County, these are the people who make all those things possible. And um, as we've said before on the podcast, you know, we we get kind of a privileged job in that for the most part, we can we can do everything we need to do um, on some level, maybe not as good as we otherwise would be able to do it if we could see everybody in person, but we can do it safely from our desk, from our computer, from our homes. Um, but so many of these other folks who are in uh, people-facing jobs, they don't have that luxury. So um, it's a big thank you to them to for 
uh, stepping up and, and taking a, a, a greater risk than the rest of us every day right. all summer long. Well, and, and I, I think that that's a, a good segue into just we can kind of briefly talk about COVID right now. It's been a bit since we've done a big update, but we're kind of, you know, sitting in the same spot as we were last time when we talked. Uh, of course, cases and hospitalizations continue to rise. Um, what What's the word from Door County Medical in terms of, of hospitalizations and stuff like that? Uh, well, it was the last... Last update yesterday, um, the hospitalizations continue to tick up uh, a couple of more new hospitalizations every other day. And of course, as those go up, you know, other people are released from the hospital. So it's not to say like they release the numbers and they say they give you the total number of people ever hospitalized in Door County. As of yesterday, that was 31. Um, But that doesn't mean they're all hospitalized right now. But most of those hospitalizations have come in the last um, five weeks. So it, you are seeing more hospitalizations in Sturgeon Bay, both for COVID-19 and also for other ailments. And when you talk to doctors and staff there, uh, they're in a crunch because the hospitals in Green Bay and the Fox Valley are also full right now. The state opened up the field hospital at the state fairgrounds um, to take some of these patients and kind of a release valve on some of the hospitals because as you have them pile up, as you have more and more people in the hospitals, that means less, fewer and fewer resources for other emergencies, strokes, right. heart attacks, car accidents, all those things. So, um, you know, hospitals are in a precarious spot all around the state right now. And I think you're finally seeing more and more politicians on both sides. They, they, the politics are starting to slip away on some of the advice now, especially in regards to masks. Um, you're seeing more and more Republican legislature legislators come out and say and, and more actively promote mask wearing um, as they're seeing the the effects of Wisconsin finally getting hit like some other states have gotten. Right. Yeah. It, the, the other thing, too, about Door County is that not only are we worried about the amount of hospital beds in Door County Medical Center, but also down in Green Bay. So if something were to happen that would require you to be transported from Door County down to Green Bay, uh, if the amount of beds down there factor into the the equation as well. And that's that's beyond just COVID-related emergencies. So it, it's something that affects us here in the county, but it's also a more regional thing as well as cases go up in Wisconsin. Um, I'll also say uh, flu vaccines, right? Now's the time to get your flu shot. I know that flu shots can be hard to come by right now. Um, I was able to get mine and they told me that the reason that uh, it, it's difficult to get a flu vaccine right now is because the number of flu vaccines that you order uh, were ordered in February. So before yeah. all of this stuff kind of really kicked in. So there was no way to really like to know what we were looking at and to get enough supplies right away. Um, so there's, I know that there's a waiting list, um, but if, if you can get your flu vaccine, the, the sooner the better. I am really interested to see what flu numbers look like uh, at the end of the flu season because I, I'll, I'll be interested to see if just how much further down they are. Um, I know that not only do you have less supply than than what we need right now for flu vaccines, but because they're running low, that's an indication that more people are getting them. So uh, I, I think that that's a good thing, despite you know how how now there's a waiting list for it. Yeah, I mean, more people are getting the shot. Um, more people are taking all the precautions that doctors have been telling us to take for the last 50 years, which is wash your hands, don't touch your face. In, in a normal year, we probably kind of blow that off a little bit, um, unless you're a bit of a germaphobe. And now this year, we're all germaphobes. So I would think right. that the spreading of it would be lessened just by virtue of our social distancing. That's what they saw last spring, is once we had the safer at home order, the 
the spread of the flu in what had been a pretty bad flu season basically all but ended as soon as we went into that. Um, they're also not seeing nearly the, le- the, the flu. And I talked about this with uh, Dr. James Heiss on the podcast a, a couple of weeks ago. The flu generally starts in the Southern Hemisphere and then makes its way north each year. And this year, it really hasn't taken hold in the summer, southern hemisphere uh, because people are not interacting like they normally would. So it hasn't right. had that chance to spread. And then since people aren't traveling nearly like they normally would, that it's not making its way into the northern hemisphere at nearly the rate that it would in a normal year. That could change. And But that's kind of the, the hypothesis you're seeing out there right now is that it might not be a very bad flu season because of those things. But right. no, nobody, nobody working in the medical world wants anybody to get lax about it. Uh, that's their greatest fear is to have like kind of a um, double whammy on the hospital system this winter. So Right. Uh, there's also going to be National Guard testing sites that's going to be on Mondays and they're going to rotate between Sister Bay and Sturgeon Bay, right? Tell me tell me about the, the testing site. Yeah, that's a community testing site. Uh, they You are asked to call ahead and you are asked to, uh, are asking people to come in if they have symptoms of COVID-19, any of the symptoms, but they are doing this at the Sturgeon Bay and the Sister Bay fire stations. The first one was October 19th in Sister Bay. Next week on the 26th, it'll be down in Surgeon Bay again. And then that's going to bounce back and forth into November. So for the next, uh, I think it's six weeks total, there'll be community testing sites in Door County. They're doing them, increasing those all around the state as as the cases rise in in the county and the state, um, just taking measures to get more and more tests out there. Right. Okay. We talked about the high water, talked about COVID-19. We're going to talk a little bit about the election, and then I promise we'll talk about some fun stuff. Uh, <laughs> so uh, elections coming up on November 3rd. The election's 3rd, fun. Course. Yeah. You know what? No, I'm not, I don't even have a joke for it. It's, uh, it's what it is. Um, <laughs> election is coming up. Uh, we, we've got a lot of people doing early voting. Um, do we have numbers on uh, early voting in Door County yet? Well, as of Wednesday, the number of ballots returned um, so far in number of absentee ballots returned in Door County matched 37 percent of the total number of ballots cast in 2016. So with more than two weeks to go till Election Day, we had already had almost 40 percent of the turnout from a couple of years ago. Um, I talked to Stacey Bell, the clerk in Liberty Grove. She said that in 2016, they had roughly all but five of the absentee ballots that they had sent out were returned by election day. So there is a like all those ballots that go out, it's a pretty indication of how many will come back in. They have at least about 150 more absentee ballots out this year than they did in 2016. So I think you're going to see um, a pretty astounding turnout if if those numbers hold true. Right. I, I'm hoping that we'll have uh, a good number of young people voting as well. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have noticed that on pretty much every single social media app that I use, the very first thing I see, and even just some websites that I go to, the very first thing I see is, are you registered to vote? Have you requested a mail-in ballot? Like, And you have to kind of click the ad away in order to continue on using the app. So I'm, I'm hoping that targeting young people through social media is going to help increase Increased numbers of young people who actually vote this year because mail-in ballots are making it easier to vote. I, I'm a I'm a huge proponent for anything that makes it easier for people to vote. And if you know your Facebook is basically telling you, "Hey, click here to get what you need to vote," I, that's a good thing in my eyes. I mean, it is just amazing how much is in our face, and especially with Wisconsin being 
um, such a highly contested state right now and such a battleground. Um, we are getting inundated. I mean, I don't watch a lot of TV, but if I, you know, turn on the Packer game, I'm like, oh no, here it comes. Now I'm going to get my, my dose of what like regular TV watchers are getting all day long. And it is, it is a lot of horrible ads. <laughs> um, and even on the streaming services now, they've, they've found ways to, to work in the, um, political ads into like the, the breaks on the streaming services. Um, and my mailbox is full of flyers. Right. It is incredible. I've never seen this level of uh, material come out in snail mail either for no, all the races. My mailbox is, is the only place that I get it. I mean, I get texts pretty frequently, but I, I don't have a TV and I pay for all my streaming services. So I live pretty ad free in my day to day. So I, I don't see any like political ads that way, but my mailbox is constantly being flooded and the flyers are always so funny, uh, because what I love about them is a lot of flyers are get are like, uh, if it's for the Republican side or the democratic side, they'll basically show a bunch of politicians on the other side and be like, is this what you want America to look like? And it's funny because no matter what side of the, the aisle you're on, you're going to get something like that. And so if it's a, a Republican ad with a bunch of Democrats and it's like, is this what you want America to look like? It's like, yeah, that that is what I want it to look like or vice versa on the other side. So I always laugh at those flyers when I get them because it's like, you really got to get your advertising right on that one. Otherwise you're just reinforcing the, the opposite side that you want to. Well, and you, the weird thing is, especially for some of the, the more almost insulting or, um, degrading ads that you see, it just always makes me go like, wow, this works on like, there is to me, especially as somebody who reports on this and, and reads a ton, like it's easier for me to pick up something and go like, well, yeah, that's an obviously, inaccurate, untruthful, or totally outlandish claim. And yet that I go, mm, that's not coming across that way to a lot of people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be spending so much money on these things. So it's a little scary to know that like, wow, a lot of people are getting this and, and thinking that that is true. Right. It's too bad we don't have a way to vet that stuff. But yeah, last thing uh, that I have for election info is uh, the last two episodes of the podcast have interviews with Mike Gallagher and Amanda Stuck, who are running for the eighth congressional district. Uh, so I would definitely check those out if you haven't already. Really great interviews with with both candidates. So I highly recommend checking those out. Uh, do you have anything else on the election that people need to know before we move into a couple more fun topics? Uh, no, that'll do it. <laughs> All right. So uh, two last things. Number one, Door County Economic Development Corporation announced their industry of the year and entrepreneur of the year winners recently. Uh, normally, they do that in the springtime, but with COVID-19, uh, they had to try to figure out how best to do it. And they ended up putting together a video presentation uh, that they sent out to do kind of a virtual award ceremony. Um, I got to help put that together. So I have been in on that side of things for a little bit, but it's cool to see that the, the, the award recipients have been announced and they are Mitch Larson as the entrepreneur of the year with on deck, uh, and also the door County cooperative as industry of the year. So congrats to both of those, uh, winners. And, uh, if you, if you want to check out the video, you can see it online. It's a really great presentation that kind of goes over everything. Uh, and there's some, some nice video work that, uh, not, not to toot my own horn, but there's some good video work in there to kind of show off both <laughs> of these award winners. Uh, and I think they turned out really great. Yeah, it's a great video snapshot of both of these guys. I actually watched it and 
realized that I had no idea just the breadth of the Door County Cooperative and all the different businesses right. that they operate and places where they have um, their hands in different factor or different aspects of Door County business, whether it be like hardware stores. But I always thought of it more as like, you know, the feed mill kind of thing and the, and farming. And they do a lot with that, but it's, there's, there's just a lot of different aspects to it. Yeah, there, there's way there's way more members than I thought, and also just the the giving back to their members, the amount of money that they give back every year directly to their members was a really cool thing to find out. Uh, so really enjoyed learning about that. Uh, Mitch Larson over on the on deck side, he had uh, some really cool time lapses of the work that they did at the Sister Bay location uh, of mm-hmm. on deck, kind of retrofitting the outside to look more like the historical stores that used to to make that building up. Um, so that was a really cool thing as well. I, I, I recommend checking out the video if you if you haven't seen it yet, but you can find it online. Uh, we'll have a link to it at doorcountypost.com so you can check it out there. Um, and Mitch Larson, the guy I've written about him before, um, known him for a long time uh always respected him as a businessman and you know his stores are just there's a couple of things he does that are, are really great one he's open year-round and he started doing that and maybe for folks in Sturgeon Bay that doesn't seem like a as big a deal but in when you live in Northern Door and there's so many things that are seasonal or um shut down for three, four, five, six months of the year to have a, a retail store that's geared at the tourism market but that is still open year-round makes it, it, it really does help locals here. One, drive through your town and, and see some life in the winter. And then two, um, just have an option to go and shop locally. And like when you need to get, hey, if you just need to get something for yourself, but like getting gifts for people and um, birthday presents or holiday shopping, like he's always open, but he's also always open late. So he'd be open till six o'clock and sometimes into the evening throughout the winter, which is just... Um, really helpful for people, obviously, who have nine to five jobs. And right. then the other thing he did that, you know, as a guy who loves history and loves to see things restored, and um, he's done some things to make buildings that, you know, maintain the old look of town. So, like in Sister Bay, it's the what used to be Bundas um, is now the on deck building, and it had kind of a plain, um, some might say, ugly look to it. And they refurbished to make it look like a bunch of different storefronts and give it more of that like turn of the century look, but a little more modern. And yeah, you could argue that, well, it's not really authentic, but, um, but it ties in more with like the look of Husby's and the spot building down the street. Um, and then in Fish Creek, it's the main intersection as you come down the hill. Um, he fixed those up 25, 30 years ago. And then in Sturgeon Bay, it's the store on third Avenue. So People who and business owners who have a tie to this area and respect it and don't want to just try and suck the dollars out of this area, but try to contribute to it and contribute to the look and feel um, are business owners that I tend to have a lot of respect for. And I think he's done an incredible job of that over the years. Right. So last thing that I wanted to talk about this week, uh, and I I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I I just wanted to talk about something that I'm kind of proud of. So in lieu of there being theater performances this year, uh, I started writing for the theater section of The Pulse. Uh, Started off doing play reviews, just taking plays off my shelf uh, and and reading them. And then like, I don't know, two or three weeks in, I just kind of went off on theater ideology and theater theory and just dug back into everything that I learned in college. 
and just had fun talking about theater when there isn't a lot of theater to see. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, I did a three-piece project or a three-part project on the Federal Theater Project, uh, which was a a government-funded theater program that ran for uh, a couple of years in the 1930s. Uh, And this was something that I found incredibly fascinating in college and finally had an opportunity to talk about it again for the first time since I graduated. So I did a three-part project project on that uh, that you can read. Uh, I think the last piece of it is was either in last week's Pulse or will be out in this week's Pulse, uh, but you can read all of it online. Um, and it just kind of goes over the the Federal Theater Project, which I think is is literally one of the most fascinating parts of American theater, uh, just just in terms of its scope and how it ended, especially. It, it, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole aspect of, you know, you hear a lot about the Depression era um, over the years. And then, um, you know, like in Door County, we there's a civilian conservation course that kind of grew out of that era to refurbish our parks and things and um, all the work programs. But I had never heard of the Federal Theater Project. And it's kind of cool to look back and think like, oh, we actually cared enough to put the money into the arts at that time. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and what I found fascinating about it is it it was a part of the New Deal, so it was it was kind of it was built into that, uh, and the reason that it was created is because uh, they they had the epiphany that artists are people and they need to eat just as much as anybody else does. So they thought, well, why don't we hire artists and, you know, fund their art and it will have kind of a, a multi-level effect on not only employing people who need employment, but also contributing to the general public welfare, because you put on a show that's government funded, you can put it on for really cheap or free and audience members who don't normally have access to theater can go see high quality performances. So now you've got post-depression era families who are able to go out and see live theater, maybe for the first time. And it's it's a great source of entertainment and education. Uh, there was a children's theater arm of it that went out and educated uh, in schools and that kind of stuff. So you had this great kind of like uh, double-edged sword of helping the economy, but also stimulating uh, people's quality of lives all at the same time. Uh, and it, it was a really smart project. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't last very long. It went from 35 to 39 because uh, when you when you fulfill the needs of an artist, in my opinion, when you fulfill the basic needs of an artist, they are able to create the work that most matters to them. Uh, and I feel like a lot of artists come from similar upbringings, uh, struggle with similar struggles, and therefore certain themes are pervasive in a lot of art. Particularly in theater, you have a lot of theater artists who are, you know, pushing progressive ideas. And when I say progressive in this circumstance, I'm talking about uh, racial equality, desegregation of schools and workplaces and public places, uh, workers' rights, uh, those types of things. Those were progressive ideals for the time. Uh, And so you have shows that are being put on through uh, the Living Newspaper Project, which is where uh, the Federal Theater Project 
teamed up with the newspaper guild and created works based on contemporary issues that you'd see in the headlines. And so you had plays about, you know, the Dust Bowl. You had plays about workers' rights. You had plays about racial equality. Uh, And all of those things were seen as very problematic for uh, for certain members of Congress, and therefore the, the Federal Theater Project was investigated by the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, because they were afraid that by promoting those ideals, uh, they had been infiltrated by communists. So it's a, it's a really interesting project. Many of the other parts of the New Deal, uh, the like visual arts and music also received funding and they continued on much longer than the federal theater project. The federal theater project was deliberately targeted by Congress and cut short because they were afraid of the the progressive messaging that was coming out of it. Hmm. That's really interesting and really good work on the, the project. And I encourage people to check it out. Um, like you said, it's all the th- all three parts are online. Um, and the last part is in this week's paper. Sweet. Uh, well, Miles, I think that that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, had a, a nice uh, spread of things to talk about, uh, but uh, I will let you get back to it. And uh, looking forward to chatting with you again soon uh, as we go over more stuff next week. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.